If you're visiting today, we're in the middle of studying the book of 1 Corinthians, which is a book of the Bible, and we believe the Bible is the Word of God, not the Word of man. And I want to um, make a couple comments as we come to the text this morning, but you can be opening your Bibles up to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. One of the Russian psychological novelists said something to the effect that if God doesn't exist, then everything's allowed. And the last few in the last month or so, next to my bed, I've had a book called Bloodland. Some of you have heard of it. It's a new work of history that, that gives the account of the tens and tens and tens of millions of people killed in Poland, in the Ukraine, in between the godless regime of, of uh, German National Socialism, Hitler, and Communism, Stalin. And so as Stalin and Hitler move back and forth, both of them denying the existence of God, their will was supreme, all right? Tens and tens of millions of people were slaughtered. I'm starting now this, I think in 1941, when Hitler decides to invade uh, Russia. Ten million soldiers died because of that invasion. Just that invasion. And so it's a slaughter on the level that we can't conceive of. And remember, if God doesn't exist, then everything is allowed. Now, part of being alive today is looking down your nose at Stalin and Hitler, knowing they're bad ones and that we've repented of that and progressed or evolved beyond it, right? But what you have to realize is that on the altar of feminism, we are killing, we've already gone past the half a billion mark of human beings destroyed, murdered, for the sake of women's self-determination, her choice. But it's not just the death of unborn children, it's the death of newborns. I got sent an article this last week uh, about the estimates that under national health care over in England, something like 225, 250,000 older people each year are killed, murdered. Then you have the newborn babies who are defective, who are starved. And so every generation of man has had the idols that it slaughters the innocent on. There's never been a period of time that this has not happened. That's who we are. We are a bloodthirsty people. And I know that it's scandalous for me to say this to you, but this is who you are. This is not the bad ones back in in Nazi Germany. We absolutely dwarf the murders of Nazi Germany today. Every year, it's 1.3 million babies that we kill, and that's just the babies. That's not the older people. That's not the newborn infants who are defective. Every year year in, year out. And that's not around the world. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, what it means for us is that we yearn for the return of Jesus Christ. It means that we live in this world as people who are in prison. In prison, surrounded by those who celebrate sodomy as a gift from God, around those who think that they can salvage their reputation and their career by killing the baby in their womb and nobody needs to know about it, around those who have such wealth 
that, that, that their jowls hang from their faces, as it were, that their eyes are huge, you know, that, that everything they do says, I am above everybody else. It's what Wall Street is. Those who think the American military is so superior that, that we never need to fear as a country. We're surrounded by wickedness, and so as we live in this world, which is a veil of tears, all right, we live groaning as creation does. You know how Romans says creation groans, right? And we live that way because we know God exists. God exists. And if God exists, he's not a rabbit's foot that we stroke and then have an incantation and tell ourselves what to do. If God exists, and he made us, not we ourselves, then our entire life, everything we do, we live in the light of God. Every step we take, every child we have, every marriage vow that we vow, every minute of every day, the food that we eat, the hair that we have, everything is for the glory of God. We do all things for the glory of God. Now, you can separate churches into two groups. You can separate churches into churches that exist for the glory of man and churches that exist for the glory of God. It's very easy to see which church it is. You know, you almost have to get drunk not to see it. You go in the church, and a church that exists for the glory of man is a church that you will never, ever, ever take risks in. Because risks are foolish. They're what Americans refer to as bad choices. Anything that's risky is a bad choice, and we educate that out of you. What you need to do is do what's safe. Don't ever take risks. But churches that know that God's exists constantly, perpetually take risks. In fact, they inculcate risks in their people. They exhort their people to give extravagantly. If you're a widow, give your last might. Now, that's foolishness. Right? Right? If God exists, then we should live in the light of his presence. If God exists, then Christians are those who have finally found a way to live in the presence of the Lord, as Clapton sang. I have finally found a way to live in the presence of the Lord. And so, as I come to the text this morning, I want to ask you, if you live as a Christian, is your life characterized by risk or security? And remember, I preached to myself before I ever preached to you. I feel that cut. But I want you to ask yourself the question, do you live trying to minimize risk in your life, or do you live trying to maximize it? What is your life like? Now, this is a perfect illustration of this question. If God exists, and this is a faithful Christian church, When you make cookies, you make cookies. You know what I'm saying? 
But why would anybody be so stupid as to make cookies when they could make dainty crumpets? Or better yet, finger foods? Or better yet, kisses and promises? What's your life? What is your life before God? Huh? What is your life before God? What is it? You want to be a part of a church that confirms in you that sneaking suspicion you have that the Christian life is all about safe choices? Or do you want to be a fool for Christ's sake? Which is it? My dad grew up in New York City, and there was a stupid pastor's college in New York City, just like we have a stupid pastor's college, just like the tenants had a stupid pastor's college, called the Log College, disdainfully by those who were so world-weary and proud. And this stupid pastor's college was run by an Episcopalian man named Daddy Hall, And one of the jobs that the men had was to go out on the streets of New York and carry sandwich boards. These big, big pieces of wood, plywood, one is angled out in front of you and one is angled out behind you, all right? And my dad saw, they had all kinds of signs, they were a witness to Jesus Christ, and one of the signs as you walked towards them is they came to you, the front of the sign said, I'm a fool for Christ. And then when they walked by, you looked at the back and it said, whose fool are you? And you see, there are only two options. One is to be a fool for Christ and the other is to be a fool for Satan. Because Satan is all about self-determination and autonomy and death. And so this is the reason today that Christians don't have babies. Because Christians aren't Christians. Because Christians know that God delights in fruitfulness. And so Christians want to brag about their tomato plants and the production, which almost nobody could brag about this year. All right? You, you think you can brag about it? Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, you got a lot of our tomatoes. Yeah, all right. Yeah, our tomatoes were awful this year. All right. George, I'm sure you'd brag about yours. No, you had a bad year? See, he and I had a bad year. All right. Christians don't live unisex. Christians are not trying to bind their breasts. You know those movies that are so popular today where the man is a woman and the woman is a man? The primary genre is the woman warrior. And it used to be that it was such a scandalous thing that if women wanted to be a warrior, they had to take a bunch of material and bind their breasts so that they wouldn't show up. But today, the breasts are a prominent feature of your video game. You know, it's an asset. Christians look at sexuality as something that's sort of an accoutrement to sleazy parts of their lives when they feel like it. 
but it's not a statement of faith. And one of the problems I have as I come to this text is, number one, I have to deal with those of you who are very, very busy making a big show out of kisses and promises (laughs) and acting as if this is Christian faith. And I have to, like, smack you upside of the head and say, wake up, you sleeper. (laughs) All right? But then when you wake up, what you want to do is you want to say to me, well, listen, it means that I need to have a devotional life. It means that I need to read my Bible and pray and go to church. And I say, wake up, you sleeper. That's this. What you need to do is be a... a, a, You need to be a man, and you need to be a woman from the moment of conception in the womb. That's what God made you. Wake up, sleeper. (laughs) And you sit there, and you get like, (laughs) when is this going to be over? When is this going to be over? We don't talk about that today. Oh, yes, you do. There's no place you don't talk about it. It's on every, yesterday, did you see the paper, the headline on the paper, blaring out of every news box, in the, in the, there at Walmart when you walk, everywhere, gay marriage. It's like, I can't get away from it. I was saying to the guys last night, what would journalists today write about if they couldn't write about sodomy? You would think that that's all there is in the world. So you say, we don't talk about that in church. And I say, well, you talk about it everywhere else. Everywhere you go, it's all about sexuality. Why am I supposed to not talk about it? Do you really think that you're a blank slate when it comes to sexuality? No, you're being written and imprinted and indoctrinated and hounded and and harassed. And you're, you're being browbeaten. You're being indoctrinated. You're being propagandized. You are being hammered, 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 hammered on sexuality. And if I open my mouth about it in front of you, you get mad at me. But you know something? Scripture never says be a misty, vaporous, cloudy, emotive, sentimental Christian. It tells you to be fruitful and multiply. And if that isn't intimate and personal, I don't know what is. Because I think I know what it's talking about. That sounded just a little scary, (laughs) but he's a cop. And so what I have to contend with is the fact that Christianity, as Kierkegaard says, has made a big show of giving God what he wants, and they know that God wants nuts. And so they just give him shells and shells and shells and shells, empty shells, shells, I mean billions of shells. Not one of them has the meat inside the shell. And that's the church today. I was listening to somebody describe a couple nights ago the church that their son works at and describing to me how women will get up and lead worship and they'll be in stilettos. Now, that's bad enough. I mean, you know, how would you feel if I was a woman preaching to you and I had stilettos on? I I hope that you'd Well, anyhow, but that's not it. They have smoke. So women in stilettos with smoke. And this is called Christianity. 
I think I know what it is. And I think it has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. And so you may be willing to say, well, don't be so censorious. And I say, okay, fine. You call me as the pastor of that church. I'll take six months to get rid of the women in stilettos. And another six months to get rid of the smoke. We don't go in and blow up bombs everywhere we go to scandalize people. But I say that in the church, there must be risk. There must be the fear of God. There must be recognition that if Christianity is simply being able to give to each other what we already wanted anyhow, with a little dollop of piety and, 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 and like rabbit's foots that you rub and, and big leather Bibles that Stephen has, <laughs> <You know. laughs> or whatever your iPod application or your smartphone, Android, whatever. If that's what Christianity is, there are going to be a lot of people who are completely, completely destroyed and consumed by the purifying fire of the wrath of God. They'll get their smoke, but it won't be a comfort. Okay? Now, listen. A few weeks ago, a plane came to this property. Remember I said that Christianity has to be risked because if God exists, then all of us should live in such a way that if he does not rescue us, we fall completely to pieces. Does that make sense to you? Right? It should never be that it just makes us even more responsible. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, I mean, you want a responsible husband. I understand this, right? But nevertheless, Christianity cannot be reduced just simply to being Predictable and safe, right? It is not a Dave Ramsey lecture. Okay? That's not Christianity. I mean, I like Dave Ramsey, right? Okay, back, back. <laughs> now listen. So if we can agree that God exists and that the Christian life is taking up our cross and following him, if we can agree on this, then can we agree that that might have something to do with you being a, a woman or you being a man? I mean, can we agree that maybe just ostensibly, hypothetically, possibly, it has something to do with you being a woman and me being a man? That God would not overlook such basic categories of our existence, right? Right? Is everybody with me? Right? Ostensibly, in other words, for the sake of argument, will you grant me that? Yeah, okay, everybody's with me. All right, good. If I were to teach on sexuality to us today, what would I need to do in order to open my mouth? It's not enough for me to be Tim Bailey, for me to be 58, for me to be six foot two, for me to weigh 250. Eh. <laughs> Lately. That's not enough. What I need from you is soil that is open to what? To the seed of the word of God. So it can impregnate you and produce fruit. 
That's what I need. I need receptivity to the preaching of the Word of God. doesn't do you any good to sit there and be angry at me. Because what benefit is that to you? That's why Hebrews says, obey and submit to those in authority over you. Because they keep watch over your soul as men that must give an account. Obey them cheerfully, because if you don't, it's no help to you. And certainly doesn't make my job happier. And so what do I recommend? Here's what I recommend. A few weeks ago, a plane came into our property, and it dived bomb or dove bomb or dove bomb bombed us. Up one side, and then back, and back and forth and back and forth on our property. Now, for heaven's sakes, why? Here's why. We have such a drought right now that the drought has created an impregnable soil. And the federal government has a program where they are paying people that own or lease land like ours to plant root crops, specifically turnips and radishes, so that this soil will be broken up and receptive to producing fruit. And so my whole 15 or 30-minute prelude today and last week is me, and then I'm, I'm throwing out tons of seeds of turnips and of beets or radishes, turnips and radishes. And I'm hoping that they will break up the hard pan of your mind and heart when it comes to submission to God and when it comes to your femininity and your manhood. Because you live in a hard pan, droughty, dry, impregnable day when nobody is to call you to let the word of God impregnate you on the issue of your manhood and your womanhood. And so I'm, I'm, I'm dive-bombing you with these seeds and these seeds, I'm hoping, will slowly bust up that hard, 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 hard soil so that you begin to be a Christian. <laughs> now, did you notice what I just said there? I said a Christian. I didn't say a man. And this is the reason I said that, because it is impossible to be a Christian while saying that God has nothing to say to you about how to be a man or a woman. It is absolutely impossible to take up your cross unless that cross is specific. Unless that cross has particular acts of particular obedience. Okay? God has never given us hypotheticals. He's always given us concretes. He's always given us objective, practical. Remember how I said it. I said, be fruitful and multiply. That's real specific. It's real concrete. It's real intimate. It's real private. And he says it over and over again in Scripture. Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. He reiterates it. And so it must be important to God. And so it must take precedence over you getting a graduate degree. You must be required to weigh your future job with the command of God to be fruitful and multiply. 
And that stands for both men and women, right? And so why am I bringing that one up? Well, because it is the most obvious thing about sexuality, (laughs) right? It's so obvious that sexuality is a gift of God intended for our well-being, intended to propagate a God we see, Malachi. Any of you recognize that? Intended to give us a beautiful companion for our old age and our young age and our mid-age, for our summers and falls and winters and springs. It must be a way for God to finally restore holiness to his people. It's better to marry than to burn. Sexuality must be integral to the Christian life. Because there's so much said about it in Scripture. And so if you claim to be a Christian while thinking that you can be a metrosexual or a dyke, and you say, well, I'm not a metrosexual and I'm not a dyke, and I say, okay, start to enumerate for me, give me a list, of the ways that faith in Jesus Christ has caused you to take up your cross as a woman or as a man, uniquely as a woman or a man. Show me the concrete applications in your life. Show me where you have decided to be manly at a place that the whole world is screaming at you not to do it because you have faith in Jesus Christ. And the same goes for women. Show it to me. First Corinthians 11, 1 to 16, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman. Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Picture it, picture it, picture it. Get it in your brain. Christ, the head of every man. Man, the head of a woman. God, the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesies disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it's disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered since he's the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him, but if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Let us pray. 
Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every one of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, again, Corinth, the city to which Paul was writing, to the church of Corinth, Corinth was a city so sophisticated and therefore so decadent that men and women shamelessly rebelled against the order of creation and refused to make their proper public confession of their sex. Men refused to make a public confession of their responsibility and authority over woman, and women refused to confess their subordination to man. And that word subordination is the proper word. It means to submit to authority. And this is the heart of our text this morning. It always is immodest and scandalous. It always is shameful for woman to live and speak and act and dress in such a way as to fail to show, to fail to confess that she is a woman, not man. Just as it is always shameful for man to live and speak and act and dress in such a way as to fail to show, to confess that he is man, not woman. And in each culture, we're to be at the head of the pack in demonstrating deference to one another, not just individual to individual, person to person, but man to woman and woman to man. And this deference is not limited to our private homes and church buildings, but maybe its most gospel witness place of demonstration, its most missional place of demonstration, is before the watching world. Each minute of our lives is one minute to make good that confession by living hopefully, faithfully, wholly, obedient, sanctified, boldly, prayerfully, biblically by living the Christian life as a man or a woman. Not a womanish man and not a manly woman. And what that means is largely a function of our culture. Do we hold doors for women? Do we stand to let women sit? Do we defer to them in the line at the table waiting for food? Do we wait for them to sit and take the first bite when we eat at their table? And there are similar questions to be asked concerning women in godliness. Do women allow men to hold the door for them? to carry their suitcase? Are they aware of the men waiting for them at the table? And do they sit down and take a bite to put the men out of their misery? These are some of our own dying cultural signs of manliness and womanliness. And Christians are not to be known for casting these off or being ignorant of them but rather Christians are to be known for embracing them as a critical component of our gospeling witness, our missionality, of our evangelism. Verse 3, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. This is the heart of the doctrine, the theology of sexuality. God made man the image and glory of God. 
whereas he made woman the glory of man. Thus says the word of God, which is eternally true. Note, we're not saying that God made husbands the image and glory of God, whereas he made wives the glory of man. Marriage builds on the natural, divinely made order of the sexes. It does not create that order. And so we're not saying that the wife is to live and speak and clothe and carry herself in such a way as to show that she is under the headship of her husband. This is true, but it's a subordinate truth to the prior obligation she has as woman to show that as woman, she is the glory of man. And as man, he's the image and glory of God. Now, if you find it scandalous that the Apostle Paul here gives commands concerning matters as deeply personal as the way you and I live as men and women, even down to the very intimate matter of length of hair, please realize that this is how specific God's commands are to us always. Christian discipleship is not emotive and ethereal. It's not a misty vapor of sentiment and feeling. Rather, Christian discipleship is deeply personal and intimate, not ending, but starting with our beds, with our kitchens, and moving to our clothing, and extending to our hair and to our heads, and to head coverings, as we see here. We are to teach the Christian believer, male or female, to obey everything he commanded. And here we see commands that couldn't possibly be more helpful to us in this day and age. Here our Lord teaches us to obey our sex. To live our sex, to love our sex. Here our precious Lord Jesus commands us as an act of Christian faith to confess that Christian faith by confessing our manhood, by confessing our womanhood. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Now, no one is going to protest against Christ being the head of every man. Right? Any objections here? No, none. All right? Of course we'd say he's the head of the universe, he's the head of the church, he is to have preeminence in all things, and therefore he's also the head of a woman. Well, yes, all authority has been given to him by the Father Almighty, and so it's never wrong to say that our Lord Jesus is Lord of every member of the feminine sex. But here we're not addressing that obvious truth. Rather, we're addressing the equally obvious truth, obvious by many passages of Scripture which build upon the obvious order of creation given us in Genesis 2, that between man and woman there is an order that establishes man as man directly under the authority of Christ, and woman is woman, directly under the authority of man. In other words, there is a way in which woman is to live confessing a subordination to man, similar to that subordination man has to Christ, what here in verse 3 the Holy Spirit reveals to us as headship. I want you to understand, but I want you to understand, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Now, many, many tons of printer's ink have been spilled by feminist rebels who have wormed their way into the church in the past 50 or so years trying to obliterate any meaning of this Greek word kephale, translated head, here in verse 3. They lie, 
they obfuscate, they whine, they browbeat, and they lie, and they do it day after day, week after week, after year after decade. They say it has no denotation or connotation of authority, but simply means source, you know, like the source of the Mississippi up in Itasca State Park by Bemidji, Minnesota. But of course, if all the Apostle Paul meant to communicate here and in Ephesians 5 was that Eve was taken from Adam's rib, why does the Holy Spirit connect that origin so closely to authority so very often? As here in our text this morning, verse 7, for a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of what? Authority. On her head because of the angels. And in Ephesians 5, we see the word head referring to authority also, where we read, picking up with verse 21, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. We fear Christ, and therefore, we submit to authority. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the source. No, for the husband is the head of the wife, so Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so the the love of the husband for the wife is the context for the wife's submission to the husband. And a husband that isn't submitted to by his wife has no justification for not loving his wife. And the wife who will not submit to her husband because what? Because he doesn't love her? He has, she has no justification. Each of us carries the command of our sex. Be subject to one another in the fear of the Lord. And then they go through in Ephesians 5 the different relationships of authority and submission we have in our lives. Children are to obey their parents, all right? Slaves are to obey their masters. Why? Because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. Headship always, always communicates authority. This is the reason that the church is to submit to her head, Jesus Christ. He's not simply our source. He is what? He is our Lord and our master. This is the reason a child is to submit to his parents, a slave to his master, a wife to her husband. He's her head. He is her authority. This is the order of creation. First man, then woman. And Jesus Christ, our Lord, is eternally begotten of the Father. This means it is no indignity for the woman to submit to and freely to confess by word by action, by clothing, by length of hair, the headship of man. It's it's no indignity. Jesus himself confesses the headship of his father. In 1 Corinthians 3, 23, Paul's writing, the Apostle Paul, he says, you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. 1 Corinthians 15, 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself, meaning Jesus Christ, also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. 
And then Jesus himself in John 17, the great high priestly prayer, says, verse 4 and 5, I glorified you, and he's speaking to God the Father, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now listen, you know that we have many mothers of in Israel, in this church, that I have a huge respect for, right? You all know that, right? And you know one of them is a woman named Ann Wagner, right? And she's here with her husband. And as I'm reading that text, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. She starts smiling at her husband. And I didn't have to hear what she was thinking. I knew what she was thinking. What she was thinking was, I have never said that to my husband. Godly Ann Wagner. It's inconceivable for one woman in this church to ever have said to her husband, at the end of the day, I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And this is why we need radishes and turnips. It's just inconceivable to us that we would speak that way. It's so demeaning, it's so lowering, it's so humiliating, it's just disgusting. And then we listen to our Lord Jesus Christ who says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. (laughs) Oh, man. What's sauce for Jesus Christ is sauce for you, woman. There's no humiliation. It's dignity. If Jesus, being one and fully equal with his Father, was not ashamed to submit to his Father, and if his Holy Spirit reveals that the Son himself will be subjected to the Father, then how on earth can woman refuse to be subjected to man as if such subjection is beneath her is contrary to her freedom in Christ. Which is to say that equality and subordination and subjection and submission and obedience, they're not mutually exclusive. If the harmony and equality of the Trinity is perfect and characterized by the Son being subject to his Father, we may have harmony and equality between man and woman at the same time as we have man, the woman said. And may I say it gently. If you reject man's headship over woman by denying any component of authority to that headship, you are a rebel against God's order of creation. Do you understand this? And you could be a man, you could be a woman. This is an equal opportunity destroyer. If you reject man's headship over woman by denying any component of authority to that headship, then you are a rebel against God's order of creation and against the honor that the church owes her Lord and Master Jesus Christ and against the submission the Son of God gives to his Father. As you cannot have God the Father without taking the church, the Jerusalem above, which is our mother, So you cannot claim Trinitarian faith, which is Christian faith, if you deny the eternal procession of the Son from the Father by virtue of denying the coming subjection of all things to his Father that Scripture itself has declared is soon coming. 
There is both equality and order to the Trinity, and that order is part of the foundation upon which the Apostle Paul now seeks to build his case against those women in the Corinthian church who are refusing publicly to confess and affirm man's headship over them. Whether that rebellion is private or public, it doesn't matter. He's building his case. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, the the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Do you understand this? Christ's head is God the Father. Man's head is God the Son, and woman's head is man. Do you love this order? Do you love it? Do you consider it precious? Do you live to live it, to confess it everywhere? Such confession would glorify God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. You live to demonstrate this aspect of the lordship of Jesus Christ over you personally. And man, do you love to sanctify your wife by helping her, commanding her if necessary, to glory in her femininity, her womanhood, her subordination, Which is to say, do you love to sanctify your wife and daughters by helping them to love their sex's submission under your own sex's headship? The Apostle Paul wants us to understand, but that's not all he wants. Faith without works is dead. And as with everything else, our faith as man and woman has works that demonstrate our faith or faithlessness. And so he moves right into verse 4 where he says, every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. You see this? God's never sort of, you know, like go with the flowish. God's specific. This is his word. It's not the Apostle Paul's word. It's the Holy Spirit's word. And he's specific. And so this is where we start. We don't start with the question of what the woman is to do and show to confess her faith while she prays and prophesies, but rather we start with the question of what the man is not to do and show to confess his faith while he prays and prophesies. He's not to have something on his head while praying or prophesying. What is that something on his head? Well, literally, this is the Greek, having down on his head. Having down on his head. Most of our fathers in the faith have seen this to be an idiomatic expression for a shawl or veil or head covering. But as you hear every man having down over his head while praying or prophesying, it's not clear. And the lack of clarity is part of the inspired word of God here challenging us to dig deep and commit ourselves to what we believe this command is to us today. It's certainly not nothing, is it? And so first, it could be a physical object, but second, it could be the hair itself. Regardless of what it is that he is or is not to have hanging down over his head, the reason is clear, it's a disgrace to him. It says it's a disgrace. And why? Well, because the man's head is Christ, and having down over his head while he prays and prophesies is therefore a disgrace to him. The prior verse 3 is the context for verse 4, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, the man is the head of a woman, God is the head of Christ, and every man having down over his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Now, why is it a disgrace? Well, F.F. Bruce put it well. 
He says, every man having down over his head is, quote, practically abdicating the sovereignty and dignity with which the creator has invested him. A woman dishonors her head if she prays or prophesies with her head unveiled because this is tantamount to a denial of her relation to man by the ordinance of creation, by the order of creation. And so we see the argument continued in verse 5. This time it's applied to the woman. First the man, now the woman. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. And so you see again, the principle is that man and woman, man first, then women, are to glory in their sex. And not just the male sex's handsomeness or strength, and the female sex's beauty and fecundity. What on earth does fecundity mean? Well, you see, this world is so stingy that you've been robbed of the word fecundity. Fecundity is that bright red tomato. And you bite into it, and it's an explosion of taste and wetness and and uh, texture, and, and it just needs some bacon and lettuce and bread. And a salad without tomatoes is like water without, I don't know, water without fish, I don't know, something. Fecundity. You see, a woman is, by definition, fecund. I said in the first service, so what do you think it means? And somebody said fertile. I say, no, 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 fertile is like biologists talk about fertility. Fecundity is enough to make a man plight his troth until death. He doesn't marry for the sake of fertility. He marries because she is, you ready? She is woman. And don't you ever dare marrying a man that has, isn't willing to say that. You should look in his eyes and, and see him saying to you, Woman! She shall be called Woman! for she is taken out of man. And so, we are to glory in our sex, and not just the male sex's handsomeness or strength and the female sex's beauty and fecundity, but also the man's authority over the woman and the woman's subordination to the man. And so the man is not to be having down over his head and the woman is not to be having and the woman is to be having down over her head when either of them prays or prophesies. Okay? It's simple. It's so very simple. But in verse 5, the Greek word changes to a word that's very difficult to understand. Remember the man head, it's having down over in verse 5, it's translated largely the same way. You see this? It says something on his head, and then verse 5, has her head uncovered. 
And so now it's not just a thing, but it's, it's covering. But it's a different word in the Greek. Now, what is the word in the Greek that's used in verse 5 that talks about her head uncovered, that word uncovered? Well, Stephen doesn't put any stock in this. But that's why we have the plurality of the eldership, so that Stephen can tell me I'm crazy. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something now. In the Old Testament, there are certain Hebrew words, and in the New Testament, certain Greek words. And at one point, 70 scholars, or around 70, got together, and they translated the Old Testament Hebrew into Greek. And so one way where you have difficult Greek words, one way to understand them is if you know what the Hebrew word means, you can look at the Greek word that's used to translate the Hebrew words of the Old Testament. That gives you a clue, just a clue. Will you give me a clue? All right, you'll give me a clue, all right? Now, this is the same word when they translate the Old Testament Hebrew into Greek. All right, listen to this. Leviticus 13.45, as for the leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn and the hair of his head shall be, the same Greek word in the Septuagint, uncovered. And he shall cover his mustache and cry, unclean, unclean. Leviticus 10.6, then Moses said to Aaron and to his sons Eleazar and Ithamar, do not, same word, do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes so that you will not die. Leviticus 21.10, the priest who is highest among his brothers on whose head the anointing oil has been poured and who has been consecrated to wear the garments shall not, what? Uncover his head nor tear his clothes. Numbers 5.18, the priest shall then have, now we're talking about an adulteress. She's been caught in adultery. That's what it's talking about here. It says, the priest shall then have the woman stand before the, the Lord and let the hair of the woman's head go loose. Go loose. Same word uncovered. Exodus 32, 25. You remember that the, the people of God go, go riot in front of the, the, the golden calf? Remember this? And what it says there is, now when Moses saw that the people were uncovered, but it's translated in English, out of control. Okay? Now when Moses saw that the people were uncovered, for Aaron had let them get uncovered to be a derision among their enemies. Well, you know what that was. It was an orgy. Proverbs 1.25, and you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof, but that word neglected is this same word uncovered in the Greek. Okay? Proverbs 8.33, heed instruction and be wise and do not what? Do not neglect it, same word uncovered. Proverbs 13.18, poverty and shame will come to him who uncovers discipline, but he who regards reproof will be honored. And then verse 32 of chapter 15, he who and it's the same word, uncovered, he who neglects discipline despises himself. And so her head uncovered may be translated bareheaded or head uncovered or head unveiled. All right? In other words, these words in verse 4 and 5 may be referring to a man with femi, gay, precious, long, coiffed, feminine hair. And... A woman with butch, lesbian, matted, short, uncared for, masculine hair. (laughs) 
On the other hand, both words may be referring simply to a veil or what we today would call a scarf or a shawl. Shawl in that it's likely extending to covering the shoulders also. But the key thing, according to scripture, is the head because it's the head that this inappropriate something covering on the head communicates a refusal to confess the sex that God made him or her. Okay? And why does it matter? Because as we've already said a number of times, and as the Apostle Paul, and thus the Holy Spirit says a number of times, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. And because, verse 7, for a man ought not to have his head covered since he's the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman, from man, for indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the sake of man. Okay, now listen. You know how today everybody has the conceit that they love diversity. You can't be a citizen of the United States without claiming to love diversity, right? And so I say to you again and again, would you please love the diversity of sexuality that was there from the moment of conception? If God makes us man or woman, can we fall in love with this? You want to know what planting the turnips and the radishes, what's the parallel today? If you want your soil broken up by root crops so that next spring it'll take the good crop of fruit, if you want to do this, the only thing that's required of you is that you declare that you love being a man. And then grow into it. And think that you should live out loud as a man. Out loud as a man. And that your children and your wife and the elders and the older women, everybody should see you manly. And if you're a woman, that you should live out loud as a woman. And that your husband, your children, and the elders and the older women of the church and, and your next door neighbor should see you living out loud as a woman. And you say, oh yeah, I know what that means. You've got to be a Pentecostal. I say, no! That's the opposite of what I'm talking about. I don't want you going out and getting catalogs of little boys with like cute shorts on that are holding slingshots. It's so disgusting. Manhood is not safe so that Their mothers like it. That's homeschooling. (laughs) Now, I know that was a cheap one, sort of, you know. But listen, every young man has to get busted loose from his mother. You know what my mother told me a few years ago? She'd been thinking for years about why she and I didn't get along when I got into high school. And in her 80s, she came to me and she said, Tim, I finally figured out why you and I didn't get along well when you were in high school. She said, it's because your father was gone from the home and I was not a worthy opponent. She's absolutely right. Live out loud as a woman. Live out loud as a man. Don't reduce it to stereotypes. Don't think that if you never let a razor touch your hair, that you're a really godly woman. It's bogus. Don't think if you put a slingshot in a little boy's hand that he's a man. 
The real test of whether or not he's a man is whether you allow that little boy to be taken by his father down to the creek and they blow off M-80s together. Which is what my dad and I used to do. The real test is whether you live as a woman, you live as a man in such a way that the world is embarrassed by the uh, fecundity of your sexuality. That as a man, you live out loud as a man in such a way that you're unbelievably fruitful and tasty. And the same goes for the woman. You know what I take great pride in? I take great pride in often having more than one room in the delivery section of Bloomington Hospital from our church. (laughs) And you laugh and you think, well, that's stupid, but I get it. I say, no, it's godly, it's holiness. Because nothing about this world entices women to have children. So all you have to do is fall in love with diversity. The diversity of manhood and womanhood. And what I want to see you do is I want to see you live as a man in such a way that if God does not rescue you, you will make a complete fool of yourself. I want you living with your family and your wife and your... I want you living out loud as a man on the campus in such a way that God must come to your aid. Are you with me? Because that's the life of faith. I'm going to close with an illustration. When I was in high school with Mary Lee, very much in love with her, we used to go on a retreat to northern Wisconsin. And every year on the retreat, it was a week long, we would go on a canoe trip. And the highlight of the canoe trip was a place where there was a bend in the river and it had a very high sand bluff. And real men couldn't wait for that bluff because we were able to to demonstrate our, our, our manly prowess. Because that bluff was probably 30 to 50 feet above the river. And it had eaten away and eaten away and eaten away until the only way to jump off that bluff was to run as fast as you possibly could to the edge and jump. And if you did it right, you would land in about that deep water. (laughs) And oh, we were men and we loved it. And fortunately, there weren't any women around. I mean, mothers, I should say, not women. There were a lot of women. That's why we did it. We were looking for wives. And it used to be that wives wanted men who lived as Christians taking risks. And so one day, one year, there was a woman in our youth group. And she's one of my favorite women in the world. She's a great woman. Wasn't Mary Lee. And she talked to one of the counselors. And she said she wanted to jump, but she was afraid to do it. So could she jump with him? And so that man said, sure, he was magnanimous, he was a gentleman, he would not want to say no to a woman. And so they went way back into the woods, and they held each other's hand, and they went flying to the edge of the bluff, and at the split second, the last split second, she turned into a woman. (laughs) And she stopped. But that man, he was completely committed already. And he dove out into the air. And then he met his hand 
anchored to her on the shore. And of course, she yanked him back, and then he yanked her forward. And of course, they landed in the sand, not even near the water. And of course, being a man, he softened her fall, and he broke his arm underneath her body. But it was a steep enough slope that that's all that happened. He broke his arm. Now listen, I want that to be an image as you leave today of what it means to live the Christian life. God is that counselor, that man. And you're to live as a woman or man in such a way that he pulls you over the edge when you're hesitating. But you don't hesitate because you don't want to dishonor him. You don't want to dishonor his church. You don't want to discourage the godly people who are living by faith. You know what I want? I want a church that I can serve where nobody's hesitating at the edge. Where everybody is completely, we used to say, gung-ho. What's the, what's the marine, what's the thing that you say, you yell? What do you yell? Hoo-ah, right? Hoo-ah. Would you yell that very loudly for us, or is that a violation of the code of ethics of marines? Okay, would you stand up and give it to us the way you would if you were, let's hear it. Okay, that's what I want. Because that's godliness, that's faith. That's faith, that's faith. And I want you to give your hurrah as a man or as a woman in a masculine or a feminine way. Now, one last thing, I don't want us to make this the entry point to our church. I don't want it. I want this to be a stealth campaign. Okay? I don't want people to say, yeah, they're the church that has buns on their head or denim dresses. After all, if the Holy Spirit frees us to be as unique as every one of you are, <laughs> tell me about it. I see you, <laughs> you know. Then it seems like being men and women would not be reduced to a cookie cutter prairie, what's it called, prairie? No, no, no. Come on. What's it called? It's, it, it's just disgusts me. I ask for words and people won't give them to me. What is it called? What is it called? Prairie muffin. Do you know the expression? How many of you know the expression? Oh, yeah, just one. Yeah. Listen, prairie muffin is what the whole world is getting filled with, which is Christian little girls and young women who are like coming straight out of a little house on the prairie. And it's utterly revolting. We don't live in the world of little house on the prairie. We live today. And whatever this means in terms of your faith, it has to be recognizable today. Nobody should get the, the idea that you've stepped out of a museum. That's impotent. <laughs> what they should do is Run into a man alive today with perceptive ears and seeing eyes and, 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 and a fertile tongue and a sense of responsibility for the condition of this world. And women who are every bit as tough and tenacious and fertile and fecund and beautiful as Rita Cuffey. And if you don't know Rita Cuffey, that's your loss, my game.
godly, godly woman, grew up at Boston Latin School, far and away the best public school in the country. She walked by the little busts of the ancient world philosophers in the hallway, marble busts of them. She learned Greek and she learned Latin. Then she went to Smith and then she went to, to Harvard as a graduate student with a fellowship in astronomy. And Rita, when her husband was hired here, he was another astronomy fellow at Harvard. When he was hired here, as soon as they were hired, Rita heard that she needed to go to the faculty-wide's coffee clutches if she, if she and her husband were going to climb the ladder of the academic pecking order, right? And so Rita went to one of those coffee clutches one day, and she had a house filled with children. And then when she got home from the coffee clutch, she found her children were already home from school when she got home. And she realized that she had missed those children telling her about their day. And so guess what? She didn't go get a prairie muffin dress. She just decided, that's it for coffee clutches for me. And then she said to me, Tim, if your wife is not there when your children get home from school so that they can unload immediately, she will never hear. Okay, let's pray. Our Father God, we confess that we are timid, much worse than even your disciples. And we remember how often Jesus rebuked his disciples for their faithlessness. Our Father, we pray that you will surround us and fill us as a church with women who lead the men by being women and not men that you will give us many children who lead their fathers by saying to them, pick me up, daddy, help me, teach me, feed me. And Father, we pray that we as fathers and husbands will grow into the women and the children that you give us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.